the Own Your Intuitive podcast is for the creatives, spiritual entrepreneurs, and light workers in the world. The shining ones who have been told to dim their light and stop believing in magic. I say screw that. The time to rise is now to bring your gifts out into the world in a big way, creating a business that feeds your soul and your bank account. You are a magical being with the potential to change the world, one human at a time. The time for you to own your intuitive is now. Hey, magical beings of love light. I am so excited. Now, today I'm going to say something, and it might not have happened, but it may have happened by the time this goes live. But the name of the podcast changed, and this is like my first interview, so I'm not going to inv- like introduce this amazing guest with the same intro as I always do. Um, So I want to actually share a little bit about this magical person because we have known each other for a couple of years now and we actually connected on a very personal level um, because we both are seriously like massively like kudos to us moms with children (laughs) with mental illness friends (laughs) and so like we weren't just like the like the case we were the extreme cases of moms who had children with mental illness and I can't wait to dive into this information on the own your intuitive <laughs> podcast with Marcia. Marcia, I see it. We I practiced your last name forever, and then I got your first name wrong. Marcia Van Weinsberg. Ah, welcome to the podcast. Oh, I'm so grateful to be here with you today. Thank you so much, Tamara. Honestly, I'm so thrilled to be here. You've been on mine twice now, and I was like, oh, I'd love to be on yours. That's awesome. So this is great. I am so excited to have you here because I know that this story is going to impact a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know that there's a lot of listeners that come in who either are affected or have mental illness. And, you know, there's a beautiful space in which we bridge the gap to spirituality with that. However, it doesn't change the effect that it has on us when we're the caregivers of those mm-hmm. who are suffering. And so I know that there's so much to talk about and so much to get into. To, but I always like to start with what is your origin story? Just whatever comes out is what comes out. So who is Marsha? <laughs> oh, who is Marsha? Marsha is it's a great question. Origin story. I think Marsha is somebody who grew up very quick and didn't really necessarily have, I don't want to say I didn't have a childhood because I did have a childhood, but I was always the um, the one in, I'd say in charge, the serious one, the one that, you know, took um, responsibility for a lot of people. I would say that for sure. And I mean, I was driven, very driven, um, worked hard. School did not come easy for me. So I was always studying. Like, I just remember life was work. Work would be something that I would say. And um, I went through a lot of things as a, as a young kid that I think I, I just grew up faster than, I, than most kids did and then probably skipped some of those stages and almost was an adult at a very you know, young age and then just continued that, that process. So never afraid to learn, always love to put myself into situations to learn and grow. Um, one of those people that you know, many people would say like, it's does that keep happening to her? Does that keep like this? It's, they're not straightforward, simple things. I don't have simple things that seem to cross my plate. Um, and you know, it's easy to fall into the pity party and do those things. And I've done that during my life, but it certainly doesn't get you anywhere. So I've learned to just, you know, what can I do with what I have? And I, I live by quotes and by mantras and they keep me grounded. And I remember many years ago, and I still say it now, and I believe it's the Stephen Covey quote, is that we are not a product of our circumstances, we're a product of our decisions. So I always go back to like, what do I choose to do next? And so that's me. I, I, some people would call me very strong and that I am, you know, I still have a big heart. Um, it doesn't mean that I don't get affected by life and by challenges, but I like to think of myself as somebody who just keeps persevering like the little train that just keeps going. I love that. So I want to kind of think back to 
little you because you say that you grew up really fast or that you were kind of mature beyond your years. Was there something that happened that inspired you to grow up that fast or were you just always that way? Um, I think I was always that way. I shared this story actually in my book um, where I spoke about, and I think this is going to be the first podcast that I actually mentioned it on. And of course, it's yours, Tamara. I, because um, you, you get your claws right in there. So my, uh, um, I, was, I was 12 years old when I was assaulted. And I was assaulted by a group of um, boys. And it, long story short, it was very, I don't, it's one of those things where if I look at it and go, I don't even know how I found myself in that situation, but I did. And we ended up, um, after, you know, being blackmailed and a few of these things, I remember at 12 wanting to, well, not wanting, I involved the police. I involved my parents and I involved the police. You have to understand, we lived in an area where there was like, we didn't even have a stoplight. Like it was a village, like it was just a little area. And so I had to grow up at a very, like I felt like I had to grow up at a very fast pace. And um, that is not a story that I have shared a lot of times. And I found it into, it found its way into my book because a very close family member said at like one month before it was being released, she's like, you have to put that in there because that's like, that was where your story started. Like you learned how to speak up from a young age. And in a small area, I took a massive amount of criticism and, you know, you being your fault. I mean, put in perspective, we're talking the eighties. This is just stuff that was not talked about. And um, so it was one of those things that I decided that needed to come out and share. And so I shared in there and I had a number of friends who read the book and they were like, what the heck? <laughs> we didn't even know this because it's not something and I don't bury it. I'm not saying I bury it. I just believe it's part of me and, and I don't hold on to it. So I believe from there, I just, I just really had to get a little bit of a thicker skin if that's a way, but it still means I feel, but a thicker skin and learning to stand up for my voice and learning to stand up for myself from a young age. And I just want to first congratulate you and say kudos to you on the fact that you utilized your voice because I think that that's a very powerful thing and not in the eighties, not a lot of people would have done that. No. And um, you know, in terms of like your parents and the police, everybody like paid attention to you. They listened to you. Is that how it went? Like were that, they, yes, they did. And they did listen and there were restraining orders and there were things that like, it was just, it was, it was an awful time being in an area that you have one school, like we have one school to go to. So there was not like you could get away from people. And some people were very, very critical that, you know, it's your fault, right? As a, as a young girl. And I think that, I mean, my parents did, they did the best that they could with the situation. And I think there's no, there's no criticism there, but I do think that in that time, I'm going to say this, and I think this is a fair statement that in the eighties, um, and probably even for some today, like we don't talk about our problems. We don't talk about them. We actually take the carpet, we shove them underneath and we just like, you put a smile on and you keep going. And that was how a lot of, I would even say as, I mean, generalization, a lot of women, um, I would watch, like I would watch, like you just like my mom worked her tail off. My grandma was a hard worker. Everybody's hard workers. You just kept going. And I think that was something that was just in my head is it wasn't that I was like, I'm not weak and I have to keep going. You just did. And I think that's what it was. And I mean, most of those things honestly never came out until years later in counseling or in support and then dealing with my own kids, realizing that, oh crap, like I, I had to be an adult from a very young age, with, which left me very intolerant to dealing with some of the things that I had to deal with with our kids, if that makes sense. It totally does. And that was actually going to be my next question. Like, yeah. that is a, like something like that is something that affects this on such a visceral cellular, like incredible level. And like, I was just wondering what the steps were that you did when you were young, like if your parents put you in therapy, like all that kind of stuff, or if that was just something you were just left to just bury until it came up somehow, somewhere, some, you know, on its own, right? Yeah, like the water boiling eventually yeah. just came up on its own. And um, yeah, like I said, there's, I think that in, in those times, it's tough because nobody talked about anything and it was almost a case of okay so now we don't talk about this anymore and I don't I, I don't want that to come across as that was a hard thing it, that was just normal and yeah. I remember and it was my sister who said to me like it was just never spoken of again like never you did not talk about what happened 
And so it was a very much about, okay, well, you take those feelings and you take the feelings and you shove them down because that's what you do. And I think that that's the case. So when people talk about this going in a different area, but when people talk about, you know, all the things happening with the Me Too movement, and I've had a lot of people say openly, like, I mean, that was 30 years ago. Did they not deal with that? And I'm like, probably not. Like, probably not, because it was never encouraged to deal with feelings. Heck, it's barely done now. So I think that you do have people carrying around traumas that they've carried for such a long time, and they don't have the skills to process it. It's not something, why would, I, why would a 12-year-old have the skills right. to process it, right? Instead, I believe, I, I do believe it's a big part of what's made me who I am. That's why I actually, in a weird way, I don't look at it and like, hate that part of my life. I just think it made me who I am. Well, and I mean, you're exceptional at using your voice now, right? Mm -hmm. That is one of your superpowers. And, you know, to be able to tie it to that place where, you know, it initiated where you stood up for yourself and where you utilized it in a way that was serving yourself and the people that could have been hurt after you. Like, I'm just like, I love yes. that you did that. Um, and you did mention that, <laughs> so we're, we're going to go to this place <laughs> where, you know, you, you are strong, you're driven, you, you know, you put, you put the shield up to, mm -hmm. you know, get yourself going through when, cause I, did you not meet your husband young? Oh, my husband and I met when we were 16. Like it's like, he's and. I mean, I honestly believe divinely he was placed in my life because I think that he is the, um, he's not that I need, but it's just that, it's just that piece. He's just, he is that piece. He is definitely that piece. He gives me space to be me. I'm not an easy person. I know that. I'm like, I totally, I totally own it. I'm not. He gives me space to be me and he's awesome for that, but he's very supportive and, and yeah, so I met him very young. So really like put in perspective, like from 12 to 16, we met at 16. I just, I didn't know it was that young. And mm -hmm. did you guys get like, was it a friendship or did you guys just like love each other right away? You know what? It was one of those things that, um, it's a, that's another story that probably won't make a podcast, but we were very... <laughs> Sorry, he's gonna go. Oh my god, we um, you know what? We just connected on a level that I don't even know how to explain it. It's just so, it was just really unique. And we even decided, oh, you make me laugh how this is going. We um, we decided that you know when it came time to go to university, we both said so. What we were eighteen, and I said, you you figure out where you want to go. I will do what I want to do, and we'll see what happens. Like I'm not, that was our actual conversation. There's no sharing where we're going. There's no influencing. You do what's best for you. I will do what's best for me. And we will figure this out if it's meant to be. And that's literally what happened. And so we, there was no, we did our own thing. And I, and I, I would even go as far as saying right now to jump ahead. We say that now that the reason why we have, I believe that we have stayed together through all of what we have gone through is the fact that, I mean, you can't take two broken parts and make a, a whole. Right. You have, to, you have to have two parts that take care of themselves first, and then you can make more a complimentary whole. And that's something we've always done. Like we've always had our own things, our own space, our own, and we do a lot of things together, but we still, you have to take care of yourself, which is another lesson and message that I've used throughout my whole life. So then did you guys go to the same school or did you go to the same city? Ironically, we were both, we ended up in the same city. Um, he was in, um, uh, he went to uh, Laurier and I went to Waterloo. His first choice was business and the number one school for business then was Laurier and mine was kinesiology and it was Waterloo. And we didn't know until we, like, we agreed not to even discuss it until we had handed it in. So it was really funny. We lived in the same city and then we just stayed connected. That's just kind of, it's just how it seemed to work. So yeah, so it's a funny story. But yes, we are now, we just celebrated 25 years married, 32 years together. That's um, like... It's a lifetime. Impressive beyond all measure in these days, especially for what you guys have been through together, right? Yeah. So yeah. you w didn't like actually solidify the relationship until after you guys were done university and then yeah. moved into yeah. getting married? Yeah, exactly. And it was just, we just, yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. <laughs> and then how long after you got married before you had your first child? 
Um, four years, four and a bit years. So I was told from a young age that we probably could not have kids because I had some complications and some issues from young, um, whether it stemmed from that, I don't know, from being, but I did have some some complications and ended up having cysts and, and ovaries and hospitalized like at 14 and 15, a number of health issues there. And I was told we couldn't have kids. So we just kind of went, I don't know if we can have them or not. And so um, we were four years, four and a half years, I think after. And then so I have to say this from a chakra level too, right? That's sacral. That's like right up in the sexual energy zone after what you'd been through and stuff yeah. like that. Like, wow. Yeah, and I knew, I knew, I knew that's, and I mean, I've looked at that so much differently now from knowing you. Like, I have looked at those things myself, and, and a lot of those things make sense now. Like, I understand why it was just bottled up, don't talk about it, and how could it not affect me internally, right? Wow. How could it not? Of course not. Right. Yeah. And so, you ended up getting pregnant twice then, after not even thinking... Yes, we ended up, um, so we, we had two boys and four miscarriages. One miscarriage was um, at six months old. Like the, the baby was six months when we, when we lost um, her. And so it's a very, uh, yeah, we, it was a very interesting, like I don't know how to explain that, but in it, you want to talk divine, I do believe, long story short, so I had a miscarriage at six months after my youngest was um, three and it not, my health went right downhill after that. Something was really, really wrong and ended up having like five surgeries, six years, had a full hysterectomy at 38. I've had two follow-up surgeries post that, like a lot of complications. I believe that that miscarriage was um, very divinely timed because we wouldn't have known there was a problem had we not had that miscarriage at six months. We didn't, I would have known. And at that point, um, I fought, again, I've been a fighter most of my life, fought for um, a full hysterectomy and I was 38 years old. And I, my doctor was like, we're not doing that. I'm like, I'm not doing the surgery every year. Like, we're not doing this. It was a, a rapid, rapid, aggressive endometriosis that came out of nowhere. And um, so they ended up um, doing a hysterectomy at 38. And when I came out of the surgery, he was like, how did you know? And I said, I knew, I told you, I knew. And he's like, I'm not sure you're missing 40 at the rate that it was going. So it's been a very, I do have an intuitive side. I know goosebumps. I knew, I knew um, I heard a voice. I heard a voice probably about eight months before it happened. And it was like, this will be your last Christmas if you don't take charge of this. And I fought and fought and fought to get it done. And he, um, he was awesome. He was great. The doctor was great. And we finally went ahead and did it. It was the best thing I ever did. Um, and, you know, it's been, it hasn't been without its complications since then. But it certainly is, um, it was a big change. It was a big change to go through. But after that miscarriage, you still, it, like, went for pregnancies. And, you know, you had... Where so, that, did that all happen? So the the two miscarriages were two were before I think three were before our first, and then we had one in between, and then or no two were before the first, and then a small one like a, shortly after, and then um, uh, the one at when my youngest was three. So yeah, so they were spread out two before one middle one after something like that three to four yeah wow yeah. Wow. Yeah, but you, that didn't, I have to ask this question, that didn't deter you from wanting a second? Or yeah, that, or? it did. It did. I, I mean, it's, it did. And only because I just, um, I mean, it was, it was just such a, I mean, for anybody who has gone through miscarriages or repeated miscarriages, it's just, it's so hard to describe um, the feelings that you go through. And again, um, yeah, you're making me think of this in a different and understanding like, I remember somebody saying to me that, you know, I don't understand what the problem with the miscarriage is because you never met the baby. It's not like it was alive. And I just sit there, and this was a friend of my parents, so we're talking about an adult who should know better. And I just looked, and I remember at the time, and I said, you know, you've, you've obviously never had one or been around one. She said, no, how did you know? And I'm like, it's not hard to know. <laughs> like, you're, that's just heartless. <laughs> like, it's heartless. And so it was a very, um, yeah, I remember after the last one thinking like, and I mean, because of the last one, the circumstances that happened and how aggressive it was. And we were, you know, we were brought in, we were, we were called in to come to the doctor's office, which is what you don't want 
that call saying, you know, um, talking about cancer and talking about they were believed it was malignant growth at that point it had taken over and so we had to we had that six week wait period where we had to wait to figure out is this um a malignant growth what do we do next and it wasn't thank god but at the time he said what we will do is they weren't sure because it was so aggressive that we will do um you will come in for blood work once a month for 24 months straight so every month I had to go in and they had to make sure there was no regrowth, look at the HCG numbers, see where I was at. And he said, I just need you to know if you even consider getting pregnant, we will, we will um, terminate it before you even know if it's a baby. So don't, you're done. Like you're done. And I was done. I was done anyways. It wasn't a, um, it wasn't. That like, was after your second son. After my the miscarriage that came after my second son. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Then I was like, no, I'm done. So it was, I mean, I was, I'm very, was very blessed to have the two that we had and fairly healthy. And, um, but I mean, I went into my, my years or early years, just assuming that, I mean, we couldn't have any, that's cause that's what we've been told. Right. So, yeah. And so, uh, <laughs> what is, wow. <laughs> Sorry. I know. I'm going to get to know you a little bit better here, but like, this is a really powerful story because now we're going to get into the fact that, you know, when did you know with the two that you had that one of them just wasn't like the other? Um, well, we had like, so we had, I mean, we had issues, um, I say issues. We had issues dealing, I mean, um, from young ages. And I remember just being in school. I mean, I raised boys. They were rambunctious boys. So, so I mean, it, school is school is really based more for girls than boys. Let's just call that out for a second, right? Because boys don't sit still for longer than two seconds, mm -hmm. and they're like little tornadoes when they go through things. And I'm not justifying it, but they certainly are. You know, they learn differently. And we learned from a young age that our one um, our one son at that point they couldn't diagnose with um, like a it's a high functioning Asperger's. They couldn't diagnose that until they were 12. Now they diagnosed it at two or three, which would have changed the whole game about how, I mean, and he's doing exceptionally well now because he's in a field that works for him. And then um, our, our, our one son was just very, very energetic, like tough to creative, crazy creative. And um, ended up going his own direction, but he certainly was like, neither one would, was easy in a classroom. Like, I mean, it was routine phone calls from schools dealing with, like, it just, and I was never the mom where I'd get there and they, they would explain what happened and I'd be like, yeah, it's, yeah, they probably did. Like, it's just, they probably did. That was just what they were like. They were high energy kids. But they were always high energy, like even at home. But oh, they, didn't yeah. have any, they didn't show any symptoms of mental illness when they were babies or toddlers? No, no. I know that my one, um, I know my one son, and this is it. Like, that's where mental illness is a tough thing to talk about, right? Like, I know um, he, he had struggled for many, it, 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 it was consistent all the way through. I mean, you definitely could see highs and lows. It was the high energy or it was just the sadness. It was, and for no explained reasons, sometimes it was hard to, sometimes it was hard to know like what could prompt it or what could, um, what would bring it on. And at that point, again, we're still talking, like, I know this is, I mean, 15 years ago, no, still nobody talked about this stuff. Like it just was not oh, talked about. Right. So how old was your son when he was going through the lows? Um, he would have the lowest toddlers. He would have them lows. He would have lows as toddler. He would. He would have lows. Um, he would have a hard time sleeping. Like 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 just could not sleep at night. Um, mind racing, brain go right. Is that like just awake for hours and hours and hours and every night? Like it's just that's how the brain how his brain was working. Um, and very, like I said, very, very creative. They both were very creative. So, I mean, we dealt with a lot of, like, they're just, in that point, it's not, not labels. It was just dealing with just different kids, different personalities. And then um, we didn't, um, I think we were, so meshed the stories together after my hysterectomy and my surgery and being sick. Um, we, so I was probably two years post hysterectomy, had another surgery and was the first time we found drugs in our house. How old so, were you and how old were your kids? At I time? was probably 41. Um, yeah, it's going to be eight years now, 41 and they were, um, 12 and 13. 
Wow. So they were young. That's like grade seven, eight, seven, eight. Yeah. Seven, eight. And so I remember the first time we had, um, that my husband had told me, I mean, I literally was lying in bed, couldn't move, had been out of the hospital and my kitchen was full of people who had come over to help me because I couldn't lift carry or anything. And I had really just surrendered at that point point. said, I'll take any help I can get because I couldn't function. It was just not. And he sat on the bed and told me, he said, we found pot. I'm like, what do you mean you found pot? Like, I don't understand. What do you, they're 12 and 13, what do you mean? And he's like, well, we found this and this is what we've done. So it was very, um, it was very challenging and very, a very difficult time um, because it just, I would love to say, you know, in that point in time, many people feel it's just a phase and uh, they're just, you know, they're like lots of parents feel it's just a phase. They're all going to do it. All I can say for me is that, and for us is that once it came into our life, it never left. It just didn't go away. It didn't, it wasn't a phase. It basically escalated. That's all it ever did. And it just kept going up and up and up and up. And it was um, to the point where it started to affect everything from, you know, whether they were going to school, whether they were coming home, whether it was, it was, you name it. I mean, it's pretty much when I say it affected and infected every aspect of our life, it did. So let's, let's yeah. just talk about this because there are kids at 12, 13 who smoke pot every day yeah. and you know, that, uh, you know, affects their, their grades and their schooling and all that kind of stuff. Was yeah. that the only issue that was really going on? No, I don't think so. And that's, um, I mean, I think that it, for, for some kids, and I'm not even just saying for mine, but for some kids, I think it's a self-medication and it's a way to to deal with stress. Um, but it's a bandaid, right? It's a, it's a, it's a bandaid. And, um, I mean, I know that's going to spark a topic with a lot of people and, and thoughts with a lot of people, but it is, um, it was a way to deal with mood swings. It was a way to deal with energy. It was a way to deal with sleep. It was a way to deal with, you know, stress. It became something. And I, I mean, I've, I've said for many years, I, it doesn't matter to me what it is or who it is. Cause we all know that addictions are everywhere. It's, it's just the fact that if you need something to function to a level every day, that it keeps you out of normal functioning society, then it's an issue. Did you guys fight about it? Like, was it a thing? Oh, God, awful, awful, awful. Yeah, it was awful. It was, um, yeah, it was awful. We had, I mean, from sneaking out of the house to not knowing where they were for, for like, weeks. Like, there was a couple, there was once it was five weeks before I could find my 14-year-old. And it's, it was, it was just a case of, um, it, like, it's so surreal when I go back and think about that and talk about that time. But it was just, um, it, life became about fights. And the times, you know, when you think of n- normal families, um, I hate say normal, but families where it's like, like the weekend is like the downtime and the recovery time and the rest time. Like we dreaded weekends. We dreaded nights. We dreaded holidays because that's when like all crap at the fan. Like it was just always, I mean, problems never happened from nine to five. Problems happened at like two in the morning and like just, right. It was just, and so those were the things that, yeah, it was definitely, there was massive, massive amounts of fights because no matter how many times we tried to get it out of the house, it was just back the next day. It was back the next day, back the next day. Do the police get involved when your kid's missing for like five weeks? Like, how does that go? Um, you know what? I would love to say that it goes beautifully, but it does not. Um, and at that point they're like, well, we'll, you know, thanks for the report and we will look and see what we can find. And no, there's nothing that you can do. And this will get, this will get started into a different topic area where a lot of, you know, it's very easy to fall into judgment about other parents and what they do or don't do. Um, but unfortunately, and I can only speak to that time, there was very, little like the only people who were telling them that what they were doing was wrong was mom and dad that's it right not the schools not the like really like it's like that there was nothing wrong police-wise there was nothing that could happen I mean it was still illegal then um but no like it was there's no charges pressed there's no things had to get much worse before something could happen like, so, like, my curiosity is, like, your kid goes missing. You don't know where your kid is. Like, you're, no. you legitimately don't know. Now, are the police saying thank you for the report simply because your child has a, you know, history of behavior? So they're not putting it into, like, this is a missing child's case? Because I would think that they would go, like, no, 
kid's been missing two, three weeks now, what point becomes a missing children's case? Yeah, I think it actually, I think it has to do with the history of what we were having a lot of issues with at that point. Like, I mean, it was, it was not uncommon to have the police at our house for like two or three times a week. It was not uncommon. It was just, it really wasn't. Um, from, you know, when you start to throw in things like um, substance abuse of any kind, you start to deal with money that goes missing. You start to deal with um, rage. You start to deal with personalities you start to deal and I mean it's it's tough because I think when if anybody who's ever dealt with that at that point like that's not your kids anymore right that's not them that's just it, you have to be able to separate that out that it's just it's just not and um you know I mean would I go back and change things is there things I could do differently I you know what I I've, I'm at a place in my life where I look at it and go, I could change everything and still be right here. Like it's just, it's same spot because it, they were based on decisions that weren't mine. And I think that's what we, that's why I'm so passionate about like truly owning the crap out of your own choices, not blaming someone else for where your life is at because um, we can't, I can't control like parents are not here to control, fix, manage, micromanage, make things happen with their kids. And I'm, I'm sure that's going to strike a chord. But what, the, codependency is not the answer? Come on. No. <laughs> you and I have had many conversations on this, on codependency. And it, you know what? Until I actually read um, Melody Beattie and information on codependency, I'm like, I'm not codependent. This is not my fault. It's just blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden I read it, I'm like, oh, crap. Like I am codependent and what codependent means is, I mean, even from the standpoint of that, my mood was dependent on what was happening here. What I chose to do was dependent on what chaos was happening here. And I just forgot to live my life. Like I completely didn't live my life at all and lost myself in the whole process. And in, in the, while you're doing that, you know, I mean, work was about faking my life. Like I was like literally faking my life every day. How are things? Great. Like smile. Like you just smile. You just keep yourself. What were you going. doing for a profession then? Personal training. One of the worst things in the world to do if you have to fake life because you're with somebody for an hour at a time. Right? I don't know. I think because we did the same thing. I think it's the most positive job to have when you have to go home. Like it, it is an uplifting energy wise job to. Yes. Uh, deplete the bank when you get home. Yes. It was very uplifting. I think because of the volume and the amount that I was doing at that time. And I was just, I wasn't in a good stable place. So, you know, as I hear somebody complain about something, there's every part of me wanting to go, are you serious? Is that your only problem? Like I would love that problem. And it's just been my brain. So it was just this constant trying to stay in a good headspace. And until I eventually just couldn't fake it anymore. And I finally, all the veils had to come off and go, yeah, I'm struggling. Like I am struggling. Okay, so there's a couple questions here that I have. One is, how yeah. did your marriage make it through all that? Um, it was really, really tough. I'm not going to lie. I mean, it was really, really tough. Um, there was once where I actually had to leave. And I, because it was just, it just dawned on me at one point that I thought, like, there is just what universe in the world would I ever sign up for this for? Like, what, where <laughs> would I ever sign up for this? This is just like, I just wouldn't. And if it was my spouse, he wouldn't be my spouse. I wouldn't do it. Like I just, I, I'm so headstrong that I think the misalignment of me living in that situation of chaos the way it was, was such a personal struggle for me. Because I was just like, I cannot believe I am okay with, like, I, how am I here? How did this happen? And then it got to that point where it's like, I have to step out. I have to step out for a bit. And when I did, um, it was really tough because subconsciously it becomes a case of, are you quitting? Like you're quitting. Oh my God, you're not a quitter. Like that was the, well, that was the self-talk that went on in my head until I had to realize that, no, I was choosing me. Like I was choosing me and that we all have to choose us. And that was a big shift for me where things, when I realized that, I mean, we all have to choose ourselves in order to make ourselves better. I can't fix anyone else. So when, so where in the story was this? Like, this is when they were 16, 17? Was yes. Before? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's the worst day. <laughs> I mean, I love them dearly, but I can tell you right now with 1000% certainty, somebody said, if I gave you a million dollars, would you do it again? I'd be like, not at all. No. No. 
<laughs> no, there's no money that I know. Sorry, moms with little kids. I don't mean to freak you out, but I just know. Well, I that's just, why I say we have extreme parenting. Like this is not extreme, that, no. you know, everybody goes through. So like not even close. talk to me about, you know, misbehaved teenagers, I'm always like, okay, I'm going to tell some stories, but don't think that this is the story. It's and no. just like, uh, you know, the case mm -hmm. of, you know, we just, won the lottery. <laughs> I was like, I just say that with love. We we only laugh because we went through it, you guys. It's yes. not because like, it, that's it's... why I say I high fived us at the beginning and I kudos oh. at our own backs because raising a child who is suffering at that level that our children were suffering and not being able to help them and have the behaviors like literally directed back at us. Oh, we were the fault. Like it was, yeah. we, we took the brunt of all of it. We did take the brunt of all of it. And I mean, really like when you're having a bad day, who do you take it on? It's people you spent your closest with. Yeah. Like, so I mean, it's, it's what they do. It's what they do. And they, there was no skill learning of how to handle the emotions of what they were going through at that point. So. And so you left, how long did you leave for? Um, about um, probably seven, 10 days. And so I literally really leaving. That's just taking a vacation. I uh, did not know if I was going to, I didn't know what I was going to, I actually did not pack a bag and walked out at night. That's literally what I did. And I did not know what was going to happen. Did you tell your and, husband you were leaving? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, and you know what? It was just, I think it's, I mean, I believe we all did the best that we could. And this is like, I, again, there's no negative at all with this. I think we did the best we could. Um, it was one of those times where, um, I mean, his, like his, the, the stress that it had put on him and us in job. And I mean, it just, it affected and infected again, every aspect of his life. And, um, but he had, I don't think he had seen it front and center the same way I had, cause I was in it day in and day out in a different way. Um, he got close. Like, I don't even know how many times police were here in those days that I was gone, like multiple, multiple day and night. And I think it became like, holy crap, this is bad. Like this is really bad. And it was bad. And, um, I think that was a, something that we had to kind of come to our own space in order to come together. And it still is like, it's just, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. And I think this is the thing is, is that, I mean, again, just like our kids, I mean, I can't, I can't force him to ever be on my side and see it as, you know, he, they, he's got to process things in his own way. Everyone has to process their things in their own way. And it's, uh, it's, I think that was the thing in the beginning is, is like, you just wanting that 100 percent support to understand where we're at but you know what I didn't have the answers we just have to keep trying you just have to keep trying different things and sure I made mistakes and I was wrong in how I did things um <laughs> I mean I certainly I laugh again out of like thinking about my own like oh, yeah. oh. well I'm like wow just like there is no handbook aid it's not like this is what you do when your child is a high maintenance child in no way. and the survival kicks in I truly believe the survival we our own survival kicks yes. in yes Think about from a child from 12 to like 16. Yes. You, you are solely responsible. There is nowhere for that child to go. There is nothing that you can do except just bow into it and survive. Yes. What it is that they are like existing, doing, like yes. living through, not sleeping as a mother, not sleeping as a couple, oh. not like, you know what I mean? Like it is survival at yes. that point. 100%. And so my question is like, I know, and for those who are listening, um, at 16, we told Ethan that he needed to seek help or he could not come home. And my son chose living on the streets. Yeah. Um, and then at 17, we stopped talking. What mm -hmm. was it? Did something of that caliber happen with you guys on yeah, some level? It's, yeah, I would say that to that level, definitely. There was, I mean, one of my biggest turning points was when, um, you know, when you're dealing with this kind of substance abuse, the two things you worry about as a parent are suicide and overdose. Those are the two things you really, and both happen within four days of each other. And for us, and um, that was the the moment of understanding that both things happened in our own house. See, as a mom, you think your job is to fix, control, and manage. And if they're here, they're safe. That's what you mentally think is that you're they're here to say. And when both happened here, I remember this moment Same of going, time? no, no, one oh. was in the hospital when one overdosed. No, one was in the hospital four days later while one. And I knew, I knew, I knew like I knew. Um, I just knew I was in for, you know, those times when you know you're in for a challenge 
and it's a, it's going to be a tough time. And I was starting to feel like, okay, I can be stronger to handle this. I understand, like, what can I do? What can I control? I was starting to do a lot of work on myself. And, you know, you start to feel like, okay, I can manage this. And then all of a sudden it's like, it's like universe is like, can you? Good, because here it is. Like, it's just like, this is what you got. And that's exactly what happened. And so when I was in the hospital, my husband came home and he was waiting for me at the front door. And I knew from the look on his face, it was bad. And that's when um, we found our other son. And so um, both survived. I mean, both survived. But that was that, that four days um, that was, they were four days apart. And that, I mean, as horrific as that time was, I can't tell you that was the most clear I've ever been. It was the most clear that I've ever been. And I remember going, we're not doing this anymore. This is, we're not doing this anymore. That We're not helping. We're not fixing. It's out of my hands. Like the whole thing's out of my hands. And that became such a clear moment of it was so far out of my hands that I had to stop fighting to fix something that I couldn't and lose myself in the process. Like, cause a counselor said to us, and I love that, that analogy that, I mean, most parents stop taking care of themselves even as soon as they have kids. They just, they just do. And he said to me, you have to find a way to become a springboard because right now you're a big pile of quicksand. If they ever come back to you, you've got nothing. You have nothing. And I was like, okay, but you don't understand. I'm trying to fix this. I'm trying to fix this and, and this and this. And he goes, no, it's not your job. And, you know, I heard that for years, but it never sunk in until it was like, yeah, it's not my job. It's not my job. So I really started to create those mantras to help me to ground myself. And, you know, I mean, I never bought it for them. I didn't give it to them. I didn't like, I didn't do that. I did the best that I could with what we had. And the other one is that I don't, I'm not here, even if I've never had an issue, I am not here to pull them through life, push or pull them through life. I'm here to walk beside them, match their energy, support them, but I'm not here to fix it. So then how old were they and did they come home from the hospital or did um yeah one was home one ended up leaving at that point so i mean essentially both of my kids had they they spent time on their own on the streets from 16 onward yeah they, they 16 onward and my my older son is in his um second year of college and he just passed his um he passed his what's it called canadian securities exam and he's now looking into investing he's brilliant with numbers well, that was pain in the butt to coach, to, to teach at school. Cause he, like, he just, math was super easy for him and he, he struggled in other areas. Plus it wasn't really, I remember a teacher saying to me once, it's not very cool for a boy to be smart and that's going to bother him. And that was, that was definitely, but he found his way and he's never, we were just talking to him the other day and he's like, he's never lived at home since he was 15. He's done it himself. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's been a, yeah, I mean, nobody wants that as a parent, but it was the only survival for all of us. None of us were going to come out of this if we didn't do something different. So then is that when you dove really deep into your own self-development when you were? Yeah, I started to, when I started to have space, right? When you're in a toxic relationship and I call that toxic, you know that. Yeah. Um, I don't care if it's parent, kid, spouse, it doesn't matter. It, toxic is toxic. When you're in a toxic relationship, you can try and better yourself as much as you, as you want. And I commend everyone for doing it. I want you to know that it's a way bigger job than you could ever imagine. And you can't do it until you can create space. You have to have some space from toxicity. Like, so if you've got the most toxic person in the world in your face every day, like I just don't care who you are. You've got, you've got to create some space. And it wasn't until I had a little bit of space and they, um, one was here and then it wasn't long after, then the other one was ended up, um, was on their own. Um, that I realized that, wait a minute, like, like the world isn't like this. Like I've lived in this bubble of chaos for years and all of a sudden you're like, it doesn't have to be like that. Like the world doesn't have to be, but you just don't know because you're living in it, trying to survive every day. That's all you're doing. It's trying to get through a day. So then what, what road did you take through with that space? Like what did you do within yourself or, or for yourself at that point to really find out who Marsha was again? Well, and I think that that's, I think that's a great question. I ended up doing a whole bunch of everything to try. Like I did, I, like you, I started meditation only to sleep because it was the only way I could sleep. I couldn't, 
focused long enough to meditate, I started yoga and met some incredible people with yoga, which yoga was a real challenge to stay in one space mentally. And, and that was, but it was a blessing. It was an absolute blessing. Um, nature walks, um, changing my circle of friends, really diving into, you know, I went to a couple different conferences, met like as myself by myself, met some new people, um, created some new tribes of people, um, reading, I even, I even have to be honest there, even reading, um, and I was a reader, I couldn't read because I couldn't focus long enough to read. So YouTube videos, um, podcasts, like things that I could, so as soon as I could feel my energy dip, I would go back to what helped me to bring it back. Like I, and sometimes like that could be five times an hour. That was just, I couldn't, I just, how do I bring it back up? How do I bring the energy back up? And, and what was bringing the energy down is limiting anything that was limiting, everything that was bringing it down, I limited my time with that. I just became a case of how do I feel? How do I want to feel? What helps me feel that way? Let's do more of that. And that was literally how life became. So I'm just curious now, what kind of podcast were you listening to? Like what, what were the go-to? Like if you if somebody's listening and they're like, okay, Marcia was doing these things, but I want to know what she was doing because yeah. now I'm curious. That's fine. Um, so I did a lot of um, early stages. Gabby Bernstein had some meditations that she had and she was my first intro to um, meditations. And so I did some of hers and then she had like a few different courses, a spirit junkie course that I took. Um, and I didn't have any at that point, like money had just been a massive headache and, and sore spot. So I applied for one of her scholarships and out of the thousands of people I got picked and I dove right in and worked and worked and worked through some of the things that were there. Um, and then YouTube videos, Tony Robbins, I would listen to cause I had to change my state. I just couldn't. And I, I mean, it was I did have to fake it a little bit in the beginning because I was just, I couldn't sustain anything. I would lift my energy up and then I would crash right back down because I was exhausted on a level that I can never explain how exhausted my soul was. It was so, so burnt out. Um, and then uh, Brene Brown became a godsend. She became an absolute godsend and um, really helped me to change my thinking and understanding about shame and guilt and blame and how we treat people with with those contexts of words and how we treat ourselves so listening to audiobooks become a became a, another thing and so i've listened to many of Brene's books i've listened to multiple times like darren greatly to me is a go-to book on audio on audible that it just really really helped me and i think i remember listening at one point with Brene brown and thinking you know I don't know why it happened to us. And many people say that, like, there's a reason for everything. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? That's when you tell somebody who's going through crap, that's not really comforting, right? Like it's not. And the reasoning doesn't matter. Again, going back to the Stephen Covey quote, it's like, what could I do with what I had? What could I do? And I believed like, as we went through all the counseling, we went through like couples counseling, parent counseling, all of these things. I got to say, honestly, we were the only couple that was together. Like there was no, we did not cross paths with any couple that was together anymore. They were all separated, all divorced. And then I kept thinking is that maybe there was, I was supposed to do something with this because this was both of our kids. We were dealing with maybe supposed to do something with it. And that became a case. I started writing and I started journaling and I started, you know, I spoke, um, they, it was funny. This will be probably four or five years ago, four years ago for sure where um, CBC Radio got my name from something, wanted to know if I'd be interested in coming in for an interview. And it ended up being a live interview. I had barely told anybody. And I thought, that's okay. Nobody listens to CBC at 7 a.m. in the morning. And I went and did the interview. And I mean, my phone blew up with people going, what the heck? Like it's So there was this collection of people who knew what was going on. Um, some people who treated us like we had the plague and left. And again, I don't have any, because I, I lived in it and I didn't know how to handle it. So how can I expect other people to know how to handle it? Um, and then there were just this case of I had some people who, you know, a client. So I went to work that day and I remember a client specifically saying, well, this is the second time I've heard your voice today. And I'm like, damn it, you guys listen to CBC radio? Like everybody listened to it. But you know what? I can tell you honestly, the second it was done and people had found out, I felt this massive weight of like, oh, we're done faking. Like we're just done faking. And I'm not a faker anyways. I'm a real person. So it was allowing me to kind of come back to myself a little bit more and be real. And 
that was the start of me starting to talk and share. And I just went on some on Monday stages, went on some, you know, schools, a few places. And then all of a sudden it was like, every time I spoke, it was an affirmation again that no, you need to do something with the story. You need to do something with the story. And every single time, I'm sure you know that and you hear it, another mom would come up and go, oh my God, that is my story and I've never told a soul. That was 20 years ago. And so they buried these things over and over feeling that they were in the fault and they were wrong and, you know, and the guilt that they carry. I just did a talk last week and this mom said to me, well, how do you make people stop you from feeling guilty? And I said, well, how do they do that? I just love to know, how do they make you feel guilty? And she just looked at me and she goes, well, you, you know what they say. And I'm like, but you, guilt is like, it's like a weight. You carry it or you don't. Like you choose it, you're choosing to carry it. And I mean, I get the guilt because I, I wish I could go back and change things, but I can't. This is the way it is. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's just transpired from there over the last few years, but it certainly started to heal me. I know I started to speak because I had to heal first to to do something with it and then to realize there was a purpose behind it. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it better, but it was a purpose. So getting into what you do now, because I swear the story is like, you know, we go through the thing, we do all the self-development, then we realize we have to help other people through yes. the thing so that they can, you know, show up fully as themselves on this earth and that kind of thing. Where, like, what was your journey through helping like you know what I mean where did it start where are you now like no that's a great question I mean when it started I started working with parents who were dealing with substance abuse and I'm going to be completely transparent here for a second I it didn't take me long before I was like I cannot do this this is not what I cannot do this it's just way too heavy um I have my book I have other tools I have things I do my talks so I do give back and I will always give back in some way shape or form to dealing with substance abuse parents and mental health I will always do that but this is a bit of tough love when you're in that space as a parent you can't see past trying to take care of yourself because you're still trying to fix your kids yeah. and so it's not even on the radar right i'm saying you need to do things for yourself they're like no you're not listening you're not listening to what's happening I'm like no no i am i've been there i get it and it didn't take long before i realized that no this was not what this was for this was not what this was for at all um so i've given a voice to dealing with it as a parent which i i know was the right thing to do do. Um, and then I would say over the last probably year or two, year and a half, I had a lot of people, women come forward to me going like, how did you learn how to tell that story? Like, how did you get the courage to speak that story? How did you, how did you get the confidence to do it? Like, I want to do something with my story. All of a sudden we've got people, um, who have had horrific things happen to them and challenging, challenging things who are saying, I want to do something good with my story too. And I went, that's it. Like that is exactly was calling me in a sense of teaching women how to learn how to own their story and own it can be just that you don't have to stand on a stage and talk about it, but Jesus, don't let it own you. Like that's, that's my message is just don't like if it, if your story has kept you so stuck from living your life that you are not stepping into who you are meant to be, then it owns you. And, and, and that's an absolute waste of you and your gifts. And that to me is like a starting point. So it's, if, if, even if it's just helping a person to learn how to own their portion of the story, right? Like we all have our own portion of the story and that is where it started. And then from there, it's gone into teaching women how to, you know, use that story to serve support and impact others. So in taking a story instead of an anchor in your life, it's now a platform. And the platform is there to serve and support and impact others. And I'll tell you, I believe in following the energy and that feels like a thousand percent better than what I was doing before. But this is a really important story and one that I try to like really bring to people's attention is that we start with what we know and then we grow. Like it's like the yes. clarity comes with movement. You have oh. to reach back with the first person that you know you can serve. And then as you start to serve with what you know, then it grows into exactly what the universe wants for you. I, that is, that is absolutely 100% bang on. And I, I mean, as people have asked me, where did you find your courage? And I'm like, you can't look for it. It's like your courage is a verb. Like you have to grow it. You have to get into action. You have to move. Like you have to move because if you had the answer standing still, you'd already have the answers. Like there was no answers. So you have to move. You have to be willing to try something 
And at a deep down core level, I just had to choose that that was not how my life was going to be anymore. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have the answers. I don't know what the answer. I still don't know what the answers are, but I know what I don't want to feel. And I know what I do want to feel. So I follow that. But yeah, exactly. It takes, you have to trial and error and allow yourself to evolve and grow and change because I mean, I believe the universe will guide you in different ways. And I mean, I think of you so often, Tamara, because you've been so um, kind of like that light ahead of me of what you're doing. And I love it. And is the fact that, you know, um, you have to be willing to try and see where it guides you. So after a time, about a year ago, well, about a year and a half ago, I, started, I ran my first event. I, I mean, I literally was at the end of August and I had this feeling of, I want to run a women's event that's here. I was traveling to all of these things and I wanted to do something. But you know what? Not the fluff stuff. Like, let's get real and do stuff. And I threw it together in less than two months. And it's now we're approaching onto our fourth one. And I love it in doing it. But it was, I just trusted that that's what I was supposed to be doing. And as, as time evolved and as time grew, I realized that, you know, these women are asking me, how do I share this story? And I'm like, yeah, crap, this is a, this is what I think it's supposed to be. At least for now, it might evolve into something different. Oh, you said my favorite, one of my favorite words in the entire vocabulary. Yes. Do you know which word it was? Just I, I, I just, I talk so fast, I have no idea what I, <laughs> but, um, no, because mine's going to be, well, universe, choice, man, what did I say? Trust. Trust. It's hard to trust. I do understand it. It took me a long time to trust. Um, you know, it's funny because I will even say that there was a point in time where I, I used to, again, talk to myself in mantras to just to calm my head down. It's like, you are here for a reason, Marcia. Like you have the tools to do something with this. You have the tools to manage it. It doesn't make it pretty, but you have the tools to manage it. And I think this is the thing I want people to know is that I had to change first and me changing didn't change my situation. Sadly, it did not. It didn't change it at all, but it changed how I handled my situation. And that changed everything. That's really what is so important. You also, and this is where the, you know, owning your intuitive is all about too. You listen to your inner voice, mm-hmm. you listen to that guidance. You, you didn't, you know, see the resistance and run away. You were leaned no. in whatever it is that was leaned brought in. in. Yeah. This would need, this is what you can do. This is how you're going to do it. Like all that kind of stuff. Yes. Lean right into it and just listen and listen. But you know what? I mean, you know this too, is that you can't, we don't know how to listen to our intuition because we stopped doing it a long time ago. Mm. I mean, I I knew, I mean, when I look back, I knew that I didn't have any control, but I didn't want to listen to that because that meant that I was going to possibly lose my kids. So I, I couldn't intuitively listen. Plus I didn't trust myself because I mean, as a mom, right? What's your job is to fix control, manage everything. Give this plan for what your life is going to look out, look like, and nothing was going according to my plan. So I must've done something wrong. So what did I know? That's what my brain was doing for the longest time was I must've done something wrong. What could I possibly know? And I, and so why would I listen intuitively to myself when I felt I was wrong right down to the core level? So it's really starting to trust and for some people, they're like, well, how do you build your intuition? I mean, I would just say, honestly, follow energy. What feels good? Like, if it feels good, listen to it and say, follow that. This does not feel good. Listen to that and follow that. I'd be around people, and there were some people who were absolutely downright nasty. And they would say something. I'm like, don't need to be here. Turn around and walk up. Like, I just don't, I don't feed it. That's right? what I love about you, Marsha. It's like, you're just like, whatever. Don't, like, don't need it. <laughs> You said stubborn or headstrong at one point, right? Like, yeah. I love yeah. that about you. But I also want to call to something that you actually said. You needed to create space yes. for yourself. And I, I will call that into, into intuition as well. You need to create the space within yourself to hear that intuition again. Yes, you do. You absolutely do. That space, that space, you have to create it. No one's going to give it to you. No one is going to, no one is going to give it. Oh my God. No one is going to give it to you at all. But once you get a taste of it, you go, Oh wait, that, that I remember that feeling like we have intuition. All of us do. We all have, we all have that. And you know, again, I go back to, let me go back to right from when I was 12. Like I had intuition that I, wait, I'm not going to be black. No, we're not going to do this again. We're going to, we're going to draw attention to this. I had intuition when I knew I had to have a hysterectomy. I knew deep down if I didn't have it, my life might not continue. And so it was very much the intuition is there. And I trust that I trust it. I have to remind myself just as much as everyone that sometimes I have to slow down. Where can I create space to listen to what I need to do next? 
And that's, that's a, that's a tough, we don't always have the answers. We have to learn how to listen. I have a question for you. Yeah. I know that you did a lot of things, but I don't think that that's the one thing. Like I'm thinking, do I ask this question? Because Marsha dropped so many juicy bombs earlier. Yeah. But I truly believe that you intuitively will know that I'm using this now and everything. Uh, oh, no pressure. No pressure. Not, no, it's not a pressure. It's just tapping into, you know, imagining that we're with our listeners right now. And if you could yeah. say one book, and maybe it's Daring Greatly or whatever, but one book that impacted you um, the most and what you would recommend for anyone who is going through anything along this lines. Wow. Um, you know what? Um, there, so when I was in the, the thick of it, I mean, Darren Grayley, I loved anything by Brene Brown. If you have not listened to her Ted talk on vulnerability, listen to it and listen to it multiple times as a parent who was dealing with, um, with teen substance abuse the two books that I read um, were Stay Close, and that's Libby Catalo, and it was so powerful. I read it multiple times, um, and I still follow her blog. She just, I love her concept is the fact that, and you would you would so love this, is the fact that you, um, you stay close, you love them, but from a distance. Like, there are times where you have to create space, and that's what she had to do. She literally had to separate from her from her um, son in order to be able to find herself again. And so that's one. And then one I read recently, which I absolutely loved and I can't, it's um, the only life I could save. It's right there on my book, Catherine Ketchum. And it's in maybe a couple of years old. Um, it was powerful too. It was just really understanding the power of you taking care of yourself. Um, I did a lot of, you know, Gabby Bernstein, I think it is Marion Williamson, where it's the, you know, the daily thoughts where you read, like, it's like a one page. They helped me because I could I just couldn't focus for much more than that. So anything that I could pull up that was a one page and I could read it would just help to shift my mind and maybe to look at it differently. So those were some of the ones that I used during that time. And so when somebody listening to this and they love that, you know, they have a story and they don't know how to build their platform with their story and they want to impact the world in the same capacity that you are doing, which is amazing. How would they find you, Marsha? Where would they go to reach out? So the best way to reach out to me is um, marshavanw.com is my website. Um, and my email we've um, put in there, marsha at marshavanw.com because my last name is way too long that we don't need to be spelling and that. And I do want people to know we're on Zoom right now. And it's so funny because your first name is in small letters, but your last name is all caps, Marsha, <laughs> on the side there. I'm like, it's like, that's how powerful her last name is. It's big. It's big and strong. That's awesome. That's awesome. You can find me on Instagram and on Facebook. I'm fairly active on both. And um, as well as I do my own podcast called Own Your Choices, Own Your Life, because I believe when we truly own our choices, we own our own life. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and you know how far you've come and the life you have built even amongst the chaos. Um, we're so grateful. And guys, I'm looking forward to dropping even more chakra bombs on you next Magical Monday. So tune in live with this fancy new podcast with a new name. That's pretty awesome. Talk to you guys later.